Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Jacksonville historian Abel Bartley offers his insight into the Black Lives Matter movement. We cannot have this discourse, this intellectual discourse anymore, because it's so heated. Since the 1950s, people have been visiting Spook Hill, which is now on the National Register of Historic Places. Local people would just kind of start weaving these stories, connecting it to some sort of ancient supernatural power. And the 1960s television comedy, I Dream of Jeannie, was set in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be sure. Dr. Abel Bartley is a native of Jacksonville, Florida, and director of the Pan-African Studies program at Clemson University in South Carolina. He also developed the Pan-African Studies program at the University of Akron in Ohio. Dr. Bartley is the author of articles on race, politics, and the civil rights movement. His books include Keeping the Faith, Race, Politics, and Social Development in Jacksonville, Florida, 1940 to 1970, and in no ways tired, the NAACP's struggle to integrate the Duval County public school system. Dr. Bartley recently participated in the panel discussion Civil Rights, Equality, and Racial Justice in the Age of Black Lives Matter, presented as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium. But I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. We grew up in a middle-class white neighborhood called Arlington. We were neither middle-class nor white. Uh, but that's the neighborhood we grew up in. And uh, it's interesting, I have, there's a group of men that we have a Zoom meeting each Saturday morning. And uh, we talk about scars, that if, you, if you're African-American, you grew up in the South, the scars. I, my family, my brother integrated the schools in the neighborhood of Arlington. Uh, and then in 71, Jacksonville was really beginning the process of integration. And I was the only African-American student in my grade. My brother was the other only African-American in his grade. And so you remember things. These are things that you can't wipe from your mind. Uh, one thing that I, I really wish I could eventually get over and get past was I remember one of my, one of the students had a birthday party and they put an invitation on everybody's desk except mine. <laughs> and you don't know, I mean, you're in second grade and you're trying to figure out, you know, why can't I come to the birthday party? And I don't know, and to this day, I, I keep that, you know, his name, I'm not gonna mention it or whatever, but, but that experience, it, it, it fires me every day because I don't know if it was 
you know, his, his parents actually did that. And I, I even keep in contact with some of my former students who graduated with me from high school. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they still have somewhat uh, less than progressive ideas about politics and things. But you, you, you see things and you experience things. Uh, my father fought in World War II, uh, but he didn't get a chance to utilize the GI Bill like he was supposed to. So we didn't have a nice house. Uh, he didn't get to go to college like he was supposed to. He, he ended up working for the Navy. And so you see, growing up as a poor African-American in a fairly middle-class white neighborhood, that you know one group has too much of the good, another group has too much of the bad. But it fires you and it, it, it inspires you. And, you. and one of the things I developed was a keen sense of right and wrong. Uh, and, and I saw right and wrong. And, and I saw how oppression works. But the thing that, that really inspired me was it wasn't until I got to Florida State and was a freshman, took my first history class, and I realized just how little I knew about how much African Americans had suffered. <clears throat> I remember one professor was saying, what you don't tell a kid is just as important as what you tell a kid. And, uh, and he gave the experience, he said, if, if there was, if I put an envelope with $500 under every chair, you all would come to class every day and not know that there was money under your chair unless I told you. And the same thing with African-Americans. We grew up not knowing, and I grew up in a city like Jacksonville, and you know, seeing, hearing about A. Philip Randolph, hearing about James Weldon Johnson, and not knowing how significant he was. And that's the thing that, that I think is, has, is one of the biggest crimes is that so many of us did not know. And we would have done better if we'd known better. And uh, but the thing I really inspire, uh, like about my parents, what my parents did is they told us that there was no limit to our possible. They had limits to their possible. My mother only had an eighth grade education because that's all the school she could get because they didn't run buses. My father had a high school education because he got drafted in the army. But he said, there's no limit to your possible. And you set that limit. And I think that that's the thing I learned. But there, you know, if there were no Jim Crow laws, no Jim Crow but there was Jim Crow. It was mental Jim Crow, and there was there was limits to what we could what we could dream about. And so, that's the thing that I think really inspired my my early days, uh, being in a city where there was so much, and yet realizing that I had so little access to it. Dr. Bartley believes that the modern Black Lives Matter movement has developed in an American culture that still hasn't effectively dealt with the history of slavery and its aftermath. The Africans were brought to the Americas to serve as workers, as, as slaves, and they were reduced in value. That is, they, they were not considered human, they were not considered equal to whites. And then you have the Civil War, you have the 13th, the 14th, 15th Amendment, which gives us citizenship, which is illegal. Uh, the 14th and 15th Amendment try to legally make us into equal whites, equal to whites. But then you have the courts undermining what the legislature had done with Khrushchev and others. And then, and so, you know, with, with the Khrushchev cases in, in particular, and I'm at the same time to let people look it up, but you have a situation where the federal government says, I'm not gonna protect the notion of black life. I'm gonna let the states do it. And the states, particularly the states that had had, had slavery, they said, we don't, we don't value those lives. So we're not going to prosecute people who killed them. And so you have this long history of whites being able to get away with murdering African-Americans. Then you get 1955 and you have a young man killed in Mississippi 
and people see the brutality of that of that killing and it touches the the the, <clears throat> the heart and empathy of some whites who say i guess blacks do matter in 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 a small way the movement toward racial equality accelerated in the second half of the 20th century and has gained new momentum with the well-documented indiscriminate murders of black people by police and others. Abel Bartley. You get this movement slowly building because you know, the civil rights movement, to me, the thing that is most incredible is that those people who went out and protested for African-American civil rights, their lives didn't matter. White could kill them and nothing was going to happen. No white was going to go to jail for killing any African-American. And they knew that. And yet they had the courage to stand up and say, my life matters, even if it doesn't matter to you. And then we get to Trayvon, uh, Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. And now we get to George Floyd. Uh, you get to having a president. And I think that the most incredible thing, I am so proud of this generation, is because they have stood up and said, we matter. Our lives matter just as much as your lives matter. When we die, it's just as significant as, it, as when you die. And it, somebody needs to be accountable for that. And I think what you're doing, linking that back to Africa, Africans put a very high value on human life. And, and for a country like the United States, who says we put a high value, I've heard the, the, almost every president talks about a culture of life. And yet, they are only talking about one group of lives. It's amazing, this generation, I'm so proud to see so many young whites involved in all that, who are saying, you're right, all our lives matter or none of our lives matter. And that's what I think is important. We are finally beginning to live up to the, to, to the model that is so prevalent that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal and thereby endowed by our creator with certain inevitable life life being number one, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so finally, we're trying to return the big mirror on the United States because America has this big boast of being this and being that. And what these young people have done is turn the mirror to on the United States and say, you say you're this, but look at yourself. This is what you actually are. And that's why I think this, is, this movement and this moment is so important because it's forcing America to look at itself and say, yeah, we have these wonderful proclamations, but this is what we're really like. And that's why I think that this moment is so important. And I think for people in Africa, people in Asia, people in Latin America, that's why they are, are, are joining this movement because they're saying amen, the same thing. You tell us one thing, but then you do something else. And they're forcing America to stand up and be American. And that's what I think is so important about this moment and about these young people. Because you take a Trayvon Martin, you take a George Floyd, uh, you take a Breonna Taylor, all these people, they weren't presidents, they weren't, but they were people who mattered to their community and now they matter to the world. Yeah, there, there are probably more people who know George Floyd's name than know, than know any of the politicians we have elected in Congress. Why? Because people have said that name mattered. Breonna Taylor's name mattered. And that's what I think is so important. We have elevated African-Americans finally up to the point to the point where our lives are equal to the lives of, of whites. And I think if we can just keep this momentum going and make America recognize that if nobody, like what Dr. King says, if you treat one person unfairly, you're treating all of us unfairly. And that's why I think this moment is so important. And I hope the momentum can, can survive. With the election of Barack Obama as America's first black president in 2008, Many people hope that the nation was moving into a new period of racial harmony.
Abel Bartley says that today's political climate makes intelligent discussion about race difficult. Like I said, I went to integrated schools my whole life. And one of my best friends, uh, we've been friends since sixth grade, uh, but he's a conservative Republican. And until, night, until 2008, we could talk politics. After 2008, the water became so poisoned that we talk football, we talk family, we talk weather. But if we ever get the politics, the strains are just too, too deep. And the greatest moment for African-Americans was seeing the election of Barack Obama. But I noticed that for my white brother, particularly my friend, that to him was a sign that what he had, we were coming for. And, I, and, 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 I know, and I'm, I'm bringing this back to the conversation we had with the kids. He began to tell his kids, affirmative action is bad. It, it, it's going to allow unqualified African-Americans to take your position. Uh, you know, if, 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 if you just obey the police, they won't bother. He, and he began to give his kids and, and begin to teach things and, and say things that, from my perspective, were racist. From his pers perspective, this was whites protecting what was theirs. And so I, I, and I, and I began to tell my daughters, you know, you don't have to take second place. You don't have to say she's pretty and, and I'm, all, I'm not. You can, you, can, you can be proud of who you are and, say, and, 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 and assert yourself, your privileges, the things that you, that you have. And by African-Americans asserting them, their, their privilege or asserting themselves to a lot of our white brothers, that's a threat to their position. And the politics has gotten more and more brutal in that now, if you're on one side, the other side is not just, you know, has wrong ideas, they're the devil. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's an intense hatred of them. And so it, we, we cannot have this discourse, this intellectual discourse anymore because it's so heated. Dr. Abel Bartley is author of the books Keeping the Faith, Race, Politics, and Social Development in Jacksonville, Florida, 1940 to 1970, and In No Ways Tired, the NAACP's struggle to integrate the Duval County public school system. To watch the entire panel discussion, Civil Rights, Equality, and Racial Justice in the Age of Black Lives Matter, go to myfloridahistory.org slash annual meeting. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, an informal tourist attraction called Spook Hill has been visited since the 1950s, and it was recently placed in the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And Spook Hill really represents the mid-century roadside attraction popularity that was occurring in Florida during that time period. So there were places like Cypress Gardens and the Wikiwachi Springs and these places that would try and attract the plethora of motorists, the post-World War II motorists who were driving into Florida, visiting the state, and were stopping, of course, along Florida's state roads and highways. This is really pre-interstate system. So a lot of people were coming through small towns in Florida. And anything that would pull people into these towns, the city businesses and chamber of commerces would jump on that opportunity. And Spook Hill really represents one of those opportunities. It's essentially just a road, but when you park on this spot right in the middle of the road facing a hill, put the car into neutral, it seems as though you're going downhill, but your car will then start rolling backwards, seemingly up the hill. It's what's called a gravity hill, and it's an optical illusion, but it gives the effect of your vehicle actually moving up the hill. And it's not very long. We're talking 80 meters or so, the entire stretch of the effect, but it's very entertaining. It's, it's kind of an interesting and, and a, kind of a fun thing to do if, if traveling in, in the Lake Wales area of Polk County. And you have here some documents from the Florida Historical Society archive that are related to Spook Hill. Yeah, that's right. The first thing we're looking at is a map of Lake Wales. And this was produced in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And it looks like your standard map showing the platted, gridded street system. And here to the northern part of the city, we see Fifth Avenue, just north of North Lake Wales, which is part of the actual Lake Wales. And that stretch of road between Burns Avenue and what would become Spook Hill Elementary School in North Lake Wales is a small little nondescript strip of land that is the the actual Spook Hill, and that's where the effect occurs, if you will, and that's where the attraction is. So in the late 1940s, it wasn't anything that was well advertised. We're really not even clear who first discovered this phenomenon, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, some county road worker who parked their truck and then thought, oh my gosh, my car's rolling backwards. But we do know in the early 1950s, by about 1953, is the first documented evidence of a sign stating that this effect does occur at this particular area. So from that point on, the Chamber of of Commerce for the city jumped at this opportunity and said, hey, you're coming to Lake Wales, visit Bach Tower, Mountain Lake Sanctuary, but while you're here, park your car on this line and it'll go backwards. And they started kind of mining these stories and building up the story that would become the, the Spook Hill phenomena that would lead to, of course, listing on the National Register over 50 years later. Now, the experiences people have at Spook Hill have a scientific explanation, but supernatural stories still persist. Yeah, and that's probably really the thing that draws people to Spook Hill today. As I said before, it's just a small one-lane road where you would park your car and go backwards. But it's the stories that not only a chamber of commerce, but local people would just kind of start weaving these stories, connecting it to some sort of ancient supernatural power. What we're looking at here are actually a series of postcards. So again, it ties into to commerce and development and advertisement. There are dozens and dozens of postcards that talk about Spook Hill. And one of the earliest shows this sign, and here's a ghost on the 
right side of the sign telling you to park your car and the ghost will mysteriously push your car backwards up this hill. There were other stories about Native Americans who were possibly buried on the site and the Native American ghost would move your car. Another one actually connects a pirate who retired to Lake Wales sometime in the 20th century. He was killed in, in some sort of bar fight and then uh, pushes your car away from his gravesite. All manner of stories. And that's part of why it's important for the National Register. It's not that these supernatural ideas are, are really subscribed to by the National Park Service, but it's the fact that they have influenced culture in some way over the course of 60, 70 years now. Well, very scary. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Spook Hill documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the cultural impact of the 1960s TV series I Dream of Jeannie. With the arrival of NASA and the U.S. space program in 1958, Brevard County soon became known as the Space Coast. The idea of space exploration captivated the world and influenced popular culture through architecture, fashion, toys, food, music, books, movies, and even whimsical television shows such as Lost in Space, The Jetsons, Star Trek, and I Dream of Jeannie. The popular American television sitcom I Dream of Jeannie originally aired from 1965 to 1970 and was set in and around Cape Kennedy, Florida. Barbara Eden portrays a 2,000-year-old genie rescued from a bottle found on a beach by U.S. astronaut Major Tony Nelson, played by Larry Hagman. Jeannie falls in love with Major Nelson, and they eventually marry. Major Nelson and Jeannie lived at the fictional address of 1020 Palm Drive in nearby Cocoa Beach. Historian Dr. Lori Walters is a research assistant professor at the Institute for Simulation and Training at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She recently talked to me about the television show I Dream of Jeannie and how it encapsulated Cocoa Beach during the height of the space program. Cocoa Beach becomes a very well-known community as a result of the space and missile industry. Astronauts would stay in Cocoa Beach. So, you know, it had this, this um, notoriety. And then that only brings you then to why I Dream of Jeannie is set in Cocoa Beach. The name had become synonymous with the space and missile industry. And so it really brings a lot of notoriety. So not only does it bring this influx of people and, and the development and, and the shopping facilities and, and all of the other kinds of things that comes along with it, but it brings them almost, you know, I, you don't want to say instant notoriety, but you know, it really builds and builds until Brevard County is a very well-known county throughout the United States and, and globally. I Dream of Jeannie took place in Cocoa Beach, and the television show frequently mentioned the city and its connection to the space program. 
what I find fascinating is how many times Cocoa Beach is either named verbally in the program or visually um, where they'll be driving up to, you know, Cocoa Beach City Hall, Cocoa Beach State Bank. Um, the cop will pull him over. And, the, you know, of course, the patch on the side will say Cocoa Beach Police. And in one of the seasons, um, when the policeman pulled uh, Major Nelson over, you could actually see that it was the exact patch for a real Cocoa Beach policeman. You know, look at most television programs, you know, how often is the place that they live mentioned so frequently? But they did with Cocoa Beach. And I don't know whether it's because the name Cocoa Beach was so well known in the 1960s. Maybe it's just because it's a, it's a nice lyrical sounding, you know, exotic almost place, you know, Cocoa Beach. But yeah, it was often mentioned in the, in the program. As Dr. Walters explains, I Dream of Jeannie got a few details wrong about the space program. The big thing that it got wrong, obviously Major Nelson and Major Healy would not have been living in Cocoa Beach. When I Dream of Jeannie airs, they would have been living in Houston. And so here you have Major Nelson and Major Healy. They were living here in Cocoa Beach um, because Cocoa Beach, again, had become so linked with, with the space program. And so that is, that is the, the one big thing that they got wrong. But the other thing is, is how military Idream and Genie made NASA look. And, you know, the astronauts, even though uh, the majority of the early astronauts were a part of the military, they're not wearing their Air Force or, or naval uniforms, or in John Glenn's case, you know, his Marine uniform. You know, more often than not, they're, they're photographed in civilian attire. And so that is the one thing, um, you know, I Dream of Genie shows them always in, in uniforms. But as a result of that, it does make it look very military. And so that is, is a big thing that they, that, that they got wrong. The television show I Dream of Genie also featured some geographical errors about Cocoa Beach. Dr. Lori Walters. What they got wrong about Cocoa Beach. So the last time I've checked... I didn't see mountains rising from the bottom of the Banana River, okay? And I don't know how many times you'd see, you know, Major Nelson's house. When they looked down the street, you could catch the, the, the glimpse of the mountains or when they were in downtown Cocoa Beach or whenever you'd catch the mountain. And, you know, of course, Southern California has mountains. But last time I checked, Florida was flat. And so that is one of the big things that they got wrong. It was a situation comedy. and. A situation comedy that involved a genie. You know, the, the premise of it alone was wild. Part of what the mid-60s were. You know, a lot of fantasy, I think, just to make people not think about, you know, a lot of other things that were going on. Dr. Lori Walters is a space historian, and she confessed to me that I Dream of Genie sparked her interest in the space program when she was a child. I was amused by it, and uh, the idea of the space and missile industry, you know, the space program, and so I Dream a Genie, I think, did a, a very good job in keeping the idea of, of what the space program, this idyllic view of, of how cool the space program was. Um, it introduced me to that very cool aspect of the space program. And as a result, yeah, I, I will admit, I became interested in the space program and the history of it because of I Dream a Genie, not only from a, from a Florida standpoint, but obviously from a national and international standpoint. But I Dream of Jeannie was the one that, that set me in motion with it. Yeah, sure. I'm old enough now, I can admit that. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.